All right, hello. So today we are welcoming back to the show Dr. Tim Silvestri. And the previous time Tim was here was one of the most popular uh, and the most listened to episodes of the Reinforced Running Podcast to date. So he brings some goods. He is a professor of psychology, and so Tim knows the ins and outs of the human mind. And as an OCR athlete, he's developed a system to help athletes improve their mental performance. And during the episode, we talk about the performance model that he's been working on, and he dives deeper into the model to explain how you can implement it into your own training. So some of the things that we do talk about is how to connect your aspirations for performance to something that's bigger than yourself, some of the common threads that Tim has found between the top performers and what, what they all have in common, and why you need to commit proper time to create a wanted adaptation before you really get started on anything. Uh, so lots and lots of good things here. I was really excited about the way it turned out. I think you're really going to enjoy the conversation as uh, I enjoyed it very much. So here we go. Tim Silvestri. Tim, welcome back to the show, man. Thanks. Now, Glad real, to be here. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm real excited to kind of dive into it. Um, we'll do an intro in the beginning just to kind of reframe everything. But uh, we, we're going to dive deep into this model that you've developed that was really going to help performance for athletes of all different categories. But first, we're bringing it back by popular demand. We're bringing back the rapport round. Nice. We missed the report round. We've missed, I've heard the, the audience misses it. Yeah. So it's back. We're, we're open to <laughs> feedback here. So now the report round is back. And to, and just so everyone knows, the uh, if you missed it as much as I did, I put a little pressure on Rich so you can thank me. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> we all missed it. And it's back now. Uh, the name itself, we've been doing it, but the name. We've been back. doing it, but we yeah, like yeah. the name. We'll trademark it. Um, so if you had to eat three foods for the rest of your life, what foods would they be? Tacos, tacos, and tacos. Three different Maybe. kinds? <laughs> it's all about tacos, man. I mean, exactly. if you had to make me, uh, if, if I could find healthy version of ice cream, certainly that would be in there. But any any version of taco, enchilada, burrito, something. So just different variations of it. So would you say would you do a taco, a burrito, and ice cream? Because that's that could that could be fine. Or would you? Just I, I would be all? absolutely fine with that. that um, would, to me, that's what heaven looks like. Now, are you soft shell or hard shell, or do you like authentic stuff, or do you like kind of anywhere you can? Doesn't matter. Anywhere. I mean, I haven't eaten it somewhere like Taco Bell on forever, but um, yeah. So I don't know if that makes me more authentic that I want it like real, but any version, I'm good. I went to Taco Bell after the race in, in West Virginia. I hadn't been in forever and I ordered a cheesy gordita crunch, which not really Mexican food, just, you know, Taco Bell, no Crunchwrap Supreme. And they gave me a chalupa and my disappointment was as as much as anything, I didn't have a great race on Saturday, but I was way more disappointed about the chalupa I received from Taco Bell. <laughs> so, so tacos, tacos, and potentially ice cream. Have you tried the Halo Top stuff? Um, yeah, I didn't like it too much. No, yeah, you kind of have to be under the expectation that it's not going to be as good as regular ice cream. Yeah, but like three hundred calories a pint is pretty good. It's pretty good, but it wasn't. Yeah, I'd rather have a spoonful of the other stuff. Of the real stuff? Yeah, but I do like the coconut milk stuff and all that, but it's just so damn expensive. 
Yeah, they they get real expensive. Those yeah, things. but coconut milk vanilla. It just has enough of a flavor of coconut and then a lot of vanilla. It's like amazing, but okay. it's like five bucks a pint. I'm not going to do yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Is that like full fat coconut one or is it just like coconut, like milk, like almond milk where it's like not. Yeah, eggs. coconut milk. Yeah. So no, I think not. it's lower in calories than mm. normally. Because if you get the coconut milk like in the um, can, mm-hmm. that is the most fatty thing ever. Oh, really? Yeah, if you're cooking with that, like Thai food has that a lot. Like, oh, it's not that bad. It's just like some noodles and some coconut milk. Uh-huh. It is bad. It is very oh, calorically dense. Yeah. Um, okay, good answer. So what is a failure that you've had that has later set you up for success? Or do you have like a favorite failure? Hmm. Yeah, for some reason, I've started becoming the failure expert. Um, and this might not be related to why you're asking that, but it wasn't, but I, I do remember you saying that before, but, uh, it's not, I was on another podcast where that's what they asked me to present on two others, in fact. And it was like all about failure. And I just bragged about how much of a failure I am. (laughs) People really resonated because it was like someone admitting how much of a failure they are. Well, just Um, give us one. Give us the the best one. Yeah. So the best one gosh i mean the biggest failure that i just got sick of i'll give you two one in process one um uh, kind of longer standing so my biggest failure that i just got sick of that i said this is it i'm i'm putting an end to this i am not going to be this way anymore is i was always the false starter the starter do it for two months quit do Mm. it find something else, get passionate about it for two months and then leave it. And um, OCR, you know, at 46, I found OCR and I realized I have never stuck with anything long enough to succeed at it. I am going to stick with this for four years and then I'm going to stick with it at least another three to enjoy being good at it. The fruits of the labor. Yeah. And I've done that. So that was a big failure that finally, I think, led to me just being sick of it. Because you do. You have to commit for multiple years. For what, was the, what was that process like? Because I'm definitely in that area as well. More like a, a, a fire ready aim type of person. So I'll just start stuff without mm-hmm. really thinking it through and be, and then figure it out throughout and be like, I don't really want to do this. Um, was there anything in particular that happened that made you want to see things through or become a finisher? Has that bled into other areas of your life or is that just like specifically for this one thing? It, it, no, it was a, a total framework shift that I realized it's not that I can't succeed. It's that I'm missing the foundations for success. And part of that foundation is knowing you're going to suck at it for long periods of time, Mm. much longer than you'd like. And that's what it takes. And so committing to that extended period of time is what bumps people through um, versus getting panicky and exiting because it's like it's not happening. And that's hard to do at the second year, the third year, you know, in my case. Um, For many, it's hard to do at the third month. Think how many people diet for six weeks and then stop, you know? 
And I, I was just reading something about along the similar lines of this. It's like having so much confidence. Uh, I don't know if that's the right word, but believing in yourself so much that you n- think that you're going to get something done that when the process is slow, you just won't accept it. And then you'll just kind of quit because mm-hmm. you're so, you believe so hard that like, okay, I'm going to be the best at OCR. And then when, after two years, after three years, you're not, you're like, all right, well, I'm not going to do this anymore. Um, yeah. I'm teaching a graduate class right now at Lehigh. And um, one of the things that I just taught about was that confidence And what happens is your confidence has to get to zero and then start coming up before you start really getting good at something. Hmm. We think of confidence as it should be high, but it's actually a U-shaped curve. Your confidence starts at 100. Oh, I'll do this. I just need to do it. Hmm. And it drops to zero. And then eventually it goes back up to 90. It never goes back up to 100 and you don't want it to. And so um, confidence is one of the best markers for where someone's at in the process. Um, And we think confidence dropping is a bad thing. But for those folks who are out there, your confidence dropping is the best thing that could happen. And I think we remember the moment in in OCR where I became coachable. You and I joke about that all the time. You know, I joke about it at least. (laughs) Um, It wasn't a joke for you. It was probably painful. But um, that was my confidence dropping to zero, right? Where I realized like, you will never know as much. He's your coach. Like you just become a robot and get coached coachable. Um, and thereafter, it really started, my performance started skyrocketing, which is exactly what you would assume. So when, it, when someone, while I'm working with, I'm watching their confidence drop and then they hit this rock bottom zero and they're shattered and they come to me and they're like, I'm shattered. I'm done. I, I'm like, this is the greatest day of your life. <laughs> zero. And now it comes back and it's so predictable. And from where it comes back, because when it's zero and then you really start listening to others, you start really listening to the people who have been there, failed frequently and they've turned it around. Until then, you're only half listening. And that's kind of what is frustrating about being on the upswing of that and being at that like 80, 90% is just like the more that you know, the more you realize you don't know. And then you're just constantly trying to chase that. I mean, it's, it's nice to have that because there is this, this continuous abil- uh, wanting to learn and grow. But it's annoying that you're like, all right, all right I just, I don't really, I, mm-hmm. there could be so much stuff here now that I don't even, I haven't even presented myself with um do people find the quitting point is the quitting point happen on the on the way down to from 100 to on zero the way down yeah always on the way down and Never on asked. the way back people don't quit because now they so on the way down you're isolated you're too confident you don't reach out for help on the way back up you, you start having a network of people around you you can count on mm-hmm. um there's anchors there of stability so hmm. on the way back people don't quit it's on the way down, people quit, huh. you know, and then you get that inflection point. And that's why I think one of the problems with narcissism or overconfidence is it takes a long, long time for your confidence to drop to zero because you're always confident. Right. <laughs> um, and you you shouldn't be because you don't know enough to warrant that. Um hmm. You know, and you're only, you should only be as confident as the team you have around you. You 
shouldn't be confident in just yourself. Because you're just a person of one. How smart could you be versus a team around you? Right. And then that's, that's why I found like investing in things like coaching or, or mm-hmm. mentorship, that is the ultimate like accelerator when it comes to learning and, and progress. Um, not, to, not just a plug coaching, but no, it's in my personal experience. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and do people know it when they get to that zero point or when they look back, like, well, after they come up in that like 70, 80% or whatever, will they look back and be like, that moment was the breaking moment. And if you, if you don't have that, will you, are you not on your way back up or can you get to zero and not know it? You'll you're shattered, mm. but hopefully at that moment you reach out and say, I'm shattered, mm. not exit. A lot of people exit or worse. Um, yeah, I think we can digress into this over and over, but mm-hmm. we have some good things to talk about. One more question, Tim, what's your yeah. favorite OCR venue and why? Um, Surprisingly, West Virginia is not, though that's a lot of people. Um, The hardest mountain, the better. So probably Killington Mm. would be one. Bomberton I certainly love uh, because of how hard it is, but it's only a super. So I guess Killington would be one. I, I wanted to do Owl's Head. Canada, and I don't think that was on this slate this year. I don't recall. I mean, I don't recall. Yeah. Like, and now everything's kind of canceled. <laughs> but they, they took it off. I, that was I was really excited for that. The, the coolest OCR venue moment I ever had was Arizona. It was the end of the race. You go up the A-frame cargo net, and at the top of the cargo net, you were high enough that you – were kind of flooded with all the sounds of the spectator area. And you didn't hear any of that for the entire race. And now you're like a half mile from the finish. And in just a sudden flash, you hear all the sounds of the end of the race. It was amazing how they, they somehow did it right at the peak of the cargo net. It's like overlooking a cliff almost. Yeah. I think I, I don't know. Either they got really damn lucky. Yeah, yeah. But they situated it like right at the towards the edge of a cliff where you literally were overlooking it. It Mm. was amazing. That was a really cool moment. It's always nice to hear that finisher area, especially Mm -hmm. late in the race. Like, okay, yeah, there. Right, right, right. Yeah. Whereas, like West Virginia, I didn't feel like it was hard enough. Um, It was more soft running and wide trails and. There, there was no technical elements to it. I love it. Yeah. I think it's just fair. Like there's something for everybody in that, you know, it's not yeah, like you're fat, but it's not specialized. It's not flat. <laughs> you know, if it would, if, if I wanted it, I would be like the, the course in Virginia, which is at like an equestrian farm, that's flat, you know, uh-huh. but that has some ups and downs. There's some a little there's up some, and down. Yeah. You're going through the woods a little bit. A little bit, but there were no rocky, gnarly descents. Not too bad. There was no, like, you could almost climb up the, it was so steep. Like yeah, like Palmer a 20 thing. minute swim. That has to count for something. That sucked. Yeah, that was, that was hard. <laughs> they tried. Um, yeah. 
All right, Colton, made it through the rapport round. Nice. So uh, before we dive into the nuts and bolts, why don't you just remind the listeners who you are a little bit, tell them a bit about yourself as a professional, what you got going on, and a little bit as an athlete. Oh, you know, I forgot to mention my other failure. Mm. And this is relevant um, to all that. Uh, the other failure I had is one I'm recently going through. I'm trying to learn the core element that I'm learning the, how to be a stock trader. Mm-hmm. And um, it's been hard because when I learn something, and this is a setup for kind of the cert model, the key to anything is what I found is you try to find the three to five most essential elements of that thing. And until you uncover the three to five most essential elements that account for like 80% of the variance of anything, variance meaning like the stuff that it's made of, um, that accounts for 80% of the stuff, you really can't excel at it. And so, um, you know, it's a bit of a different way of looking at things. But um, what I, so as I've been trading, I've been trying to find the three to five core elements of what allows you to make money in the market, um, how it works, how it moves, what it's doing. Um, and so, that's been really hard and I've failed miserably at it. I had an initial huge success and then lost half of that profit and that failure sucked. And I recently went into a bit of a kind of downward spiral emotionally almost where just feeling like a failure and like be, it really hit me hard. Um, and uh, we'll, you'll hear kind of, you could ascertain why as we go through the cert model, but, um, linking it to something bigger than myself and all that. But um, yeah, that was a huge failure and it hurt. And so the point of that is even when you're succeeding in so many areas of your life, failing in one area can just derail a lot, you know, and, and here I am 51. I think most people would say I'm a highly successful person on paper. And here I went into this spiral temporarily. It hmm. can happen to us all. So failures hurt. They suck. Yeah, I could imagine in uh, doing something like day trading, it would suck really bad. Um, it would, yeah. What is that something that is just increasingly popular now? Is it because of the fluctuations that are happening that people are kind of jumping into it? Or is this something that you've been looking at? Because I feel like I'm, here, I'm hearing more and more about people getting crushed in the market or, or making a killing. And I'm not. Yeah, so in the past, it, it, you had to pay commission on trades. So if you were a small you know, if you had a couple thousand dollars to invest and you were paying $7 a trade, that's $15 in, you know, seven in, seven out. That was $14 for, and if you only made $20 on that trade, you just paid out 14 to get six. It sucked. Yeah. So now it's commission free across the board. And so that's making it a little better because if you get, if you make 20 bucks that day, you actually get to keep it. I think that's a big part of the resurgence. I think everyone's always been interested in it, but not a lot of people because it's a way to make money. But um, but people are getting trounced because I think they 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 don't really try to go for the for the innards of it. You mm. know, they they just they want to make a killing. 
they're going on like gut gut instinct right. or something. Like you can't just want to make a killing. You have to. You can't just want to run fast. You have to figure out what it is. And you and I have talked about this. To me, with running, the core is the uh, um, the vector, the physics of how your foot strike is, and if it's a perfect vector or not, is going to lead to what we call running efficiency. But it's mm-hmm. going to make you an extremely fast runner. And so I think there's no getting around that foot strike is one of the core elements. And to me, the one of the easiest things you could do is measure cadence. And that's going to approximate a perfect foot strike more than anything else. So that's a more easy way to measure it than having a physicist on hand measuring, right? you know, strike angle. plate or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that hurt. You know, um, hurt recently. I bet I could imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So tell us a little bit more about who you yeah. are outside of the failures, right? And uh, what we got going on. Yeah. So um, I'm a psychologist. Um, again, I mentioned some of this before, so maybe I'll do a different intro. I'm a psychologist, uh, and um, I have uh, I'm a director of counseling services at Muhlenberg College, which is my alma mater. Um, and on my private practice, I've switched my private practice exclusively over to working with top amateurs and elites who are trying to get to the top 1%. Um, to do that, I've developed a model over the last 20 years, which is finally in its kind of finishing phases and, um, being launched on a more comprehensive kind of, uh, uh, more, um, a level that can be put out to masses without me working one-on-one with people, which can be more costly. Um, and that's been my recent uh, passion, I'd say, is getting the model out so people can live well. And I think the coolest thing about that work is, it, you know, the idea is people are starting to hit their core aspirations. And when they do that, they, they become better people. They feel more fulfilled. They're filled with more knowledge of how things work. They're filled, they're filled with a framework that um, allows them to live well. They have more joy. They just become better people. And to me, that's, that's the mission behind it. Just like Spartan, okay, you, you get in the mud and you do stuff and blah, blah, blah. Their mission is to get people off the couch, right? And mm-hmm. so it sounds like when, if you just saw my clientele that I work with top amateurs and elites, um, that, you know, I'm some performance coach helping people try to go to the Olympics or the NHL or something. But if you look at the real mission, it's to make better people. Mm. Um, and, and people do come out better people i think and that's what's most exciting and i I know of the model just from working with you and it's something that i've kind of thought about too it's like okay right now i'm using this specifically in my athletic endeavor but i can see how this can translate into things beyond just athletics right like if i wanted to apply that to business or some or like a work life or even like family life is that something you you think this could end up translating into or have you even thought about that yeah i i do i think it totally translates over to that but secondly i think we're all, I think when you aren't 
when you don't even know your core aspiration and you aren't fulfilling it, I just don't think you really can live well. Mm. Um, you can live okay. Don't get me wrong. And, and an aspiration doesn't have to be uh, the Olympics. It could be to have a fulfilling family life. But um, I don't think you can be in, I, I don't think you could lie to yourself. I, I think you, you know when you feel unfulfilled and it just gnaws at you. And you, mm. and you make, we make excuses of why it's not possible. I got to earn a living. I got to do this. I, 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 you know, I, I just don't have the luxury of that, but you, you could do it. And I think we, we have this gnawing, this thing gnawing at us often. Um, but anyway, I, I think too, then a judgment comes and you're frustrated with life and you're frustrated with where you're at and whatever. Um, and I think all those things chip away at joy, chip away at happiness, or you're chasing an aspiration. You're not doing it the right way. And you're constantly frustrated, impatient, panicky, angry, irritable, and you're not a very fun person to be around. Hmm. Um, and I've seen that where people have an aspiration, they're striving towards it and they're miserable to be around. You know, they, they've just, because they're, they're constantly chasing so before we get into it a little bit more about the aspirations and, and what mm -hmm. that means and how to kind of find that, can you kind of give us like a big uh, overarching view of kind of like the, what the model is and, and how it links to your aspiration and, and performance? The, the you mean the cert? The cert. Well, it, would it be okay if we started with the aspiration? Yeah, totally. I think that's, that's the piece of it. So, you know, the first idea is to think, what is it? that you're aspiring to be. And there's two levels of that. So when I work with someone individually or as a group, the first, um, the first assessment variable is to think, what is your aspiration? Um, and we start with that. Now on an intro level, it's just listing an aspiration. So if I work with someone and they're new to this all, uh, I'm gonna just listen for an aspiration. On an advanced level, we're going to really tease apart that aspiration and make it much more personal and much more nuanced. We're going to get as nuanced as we can, because what I find is people will have an aspiration, but they're not really in touch with it on the deepest level and, and they're not really sure about it. And so I really kind of listen and challenge people to get more and more nuanced. So if you knew my aspiration, which was to become one of the top 50 plus OCR racers in the world, um, at least among the top, and that aspiration makes sense because I, I grew up as a Jersey boy, uh, in, you know, in New Jersey, in, in eastern New Jersey, right outside of New York City, a lot of pavement. I didn't have any clue what a mountain was, but I had a grandfather and uncle who loved hiking and loved outdoors and hunting and all this stuff. And I just thought there was a mythical quality to that stuff. Um, secondly, I love distance and I always excelled at being the last man standing among my friends. I sucked at sprints. So, you know, give me the gnarliest, nastiest, it crushes everyone's souls and I'm the last one standing and I'm in. And that's why I like Killington up on a mountain, you know, that's an aspiration to me. 
is that kind of stuff. Um, and it's linked to my personal history. It's linked to who I am. It's linked to things I was exposed to growing up. It really is embedded in the fabric of who I am. So within the model, that's the first step is to get that aspiration and go as deep as we can with it. And then we apply the CERT model. So I, I can just imagine just listening to something like this um, and thinking, just having just that, yes, I know what my aspiration is and just not even even thinking about it that much, just having like drop it and like, okay, this is my yeah. aspiration or whatever, um, but not even thinking about it too much and diving in into it and, and peeling back the layer. So why do you think people struggle with the aspiration piece? Like, and if for someone listening right now, like how could they even dive in a little bit deeper to really figure out like if that is what their aspiration is or if that's what they think their aspiration like should be, let's say. Oh, so we have this this thing called a common narrative. That's what I was looking for. Common narrative. Um, and that's different than what is, you know, germane to you, your your own, what you're aligned with. And so a lot of times like a runner will think I need to have a fast 5K time not because it's really truly meaningful for them, but because it's a common narrative. Um, be fast at a 5K or Boston, qualify for Boston. Mm-hmm. When I would love to qualify for Boston, but you know what? I hate running on roads. I hate it. I, if I could never run on a road again, I'd be the happier, happiest person alive. Whereas you fast people give you, you know, something like the Broad Street Run or I don't know what, you're like in Love heaven. <laughs> right. That is not for me. That's a Rich Ryan race, <laughs> right? But that's not a Tim Silvestri race. It's just not in my fabric. Um, so we really want to get into what's authentic to us, not common narrative. And I think that's one stumbling block is since we know so well common narrative, it almost feels like it's authentic to us, but we never stop to actually consider, is this truly authentic to me and why, or is it common narrative? And, and this is where you helped me tremendously this year, because when, when we first talk about this, like the common narrative w- would be for me to feel like you. It's like, oh, okay, I need to get in the woods and be there for five hours. I need to do stuff that just is super hard, doesn't make any sense so that I can be prepared when really I like putting it at a red line and pushing it for an hour and seeing where, where it can happen like that to me is cool. That is, that is what I aspire to do. So that's kind of how my direction had been shifted this year. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to race, but like, that's mm-hmm. why I was like, okay, then I need to do Decafit high rocks stadium. Like this is who I want to be. Right. Even more so rich you, for you, heaven, which for, I think should be 99% of us. Hell for you, heaven is basically being almost 99% of the way to a, a sprint mm-hmm. max level for 20 minutes. Just hanging. Oh my God. That is absolute torture. I can't think of a more tortured thing in my whole existence than that. It's but very that's hard. your thing. And you were like eyeing up ultras or like mountain races and you can do those and you can excel. You won Virginia. You've won those kind of races, but even Virginia was flatter, yeah. but it still was on, on trail. But yeah, man, you're, you're that thoroughbred. And that's, the, <laughs> but that's what you mean when it comes back to the, the common narrative, like, right. Like you hear from the people mm-hmm. who come out of Tahoe and you look at the list and like nine of the top 10, I think, cause I did go through it. Like eight of the top 10 all live in the mountains, all mm-hmm. live at altitude, right? Like, 
they live there because it's cool to them. That's where they want to spend their time. And they just happen and to they run these. Love it. And they love it. And they just happen to run races that yep. that's advantageous for. Well, for me, I'm like, Versus going out. you and Bracken. Right. We're going out of our way and like yeah. trying hard and hoping it's enough. Um, we would rather be on the track or something. Yeah. <laughs> and there's I mean, look at us. all the world champions. They live in the mountains and they love the mountains. That's truly their passion. Cody totally. Mode, Hobie, uh, Atkins, Albin. Yeah. Uh, Killian, Albin. They all love mountains. It's, it's their authenticity. So yeah, and then and then so they don't have to. They're not falling into under that that common narrative. And I w- I got trapped in that just because of the sport. Um, and I feel like that is something other people can do. So how can people kind of uncover this then? Like, like we worked together on that, and like we we actually missed it at first, even because of what I thought I should want to do. Um, so how can people really kind of peel this thing back and figure out like what it is that they want that they actually aspire to be? Yeah, I think just knowing the idea of common narrative versus authenticity, mm. it's always a framework. I I think we are, we're not knowledgeable. We're not, we don't know the frameworks that we're missing. And we rarely think in framework terms. We think in, in very specific, uh, but frameworks are, are really what guide us. I think having the framework and just, I think uh, knowing that there is this thing, common narrative versus authenticity, I think will help people a great deal. Cause now you're, you're comparing, is this common narrative or is this authenticity? Sometimes common narrative is our authentic selves. Sometimes it's not. Um, so that's one question to ask. And then the second question to ask yourself is why, you know, why is that appealing to me? Mm. Um, it's running in mountains. Is there anything in my background or is there anything that would suggest that mountain running really is my jam? For me, the answer clearly was yes. You know, for you, it's cool. You can do it. I like it. You like it. Um, but man, going as hard as you can for some period of time, uh, that's just your thing. Totally, and you knew it when when we started talking about it. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, it can you become it. right, and it can definitely um, come clear and, and mention. You know, we're not thinking in frameworks uh, as much, and we're not used to thinking in frameworks, and mm-hmm. and that that is a good way to kind of help help position that. Um, and something else that you mentioned that uh, in in the past. In and I also struggle with this as well, and I'm still kind of working on is having it linked to something other than yourself. So how is that important and how can people find what uh, their aspiration would be in terms of other people? Because it's hard enough to peel that back. Like you can get it wrong or you cannot think about it hard enough. And then to think about it in terms of someone else seems challenging. Yeah. So the second element of the aspiration is to link it to something bigger than yourself. And that's pivotal for a number of reasons. Um, For one uh, we're a social species. So anything, when you can connect it to something social, humans and mammals are going to do better with it. Um, when we're isolated, we don't do as well. So, um, that's going to help. Second, linking it to something bigger than yourself. We all have these times where we really want to stop and it's reasonable to stop. It's reasonable to give up. Um, I was pursuing OCR for three years. I had never podiumed or anything like that. That would have been reasonable at that point to say, okay, you gave it a good try. 
you, this isn't, you're not going to make it. Um, I didn't. Uh, and the reason was because it was linked to something bigger than myself. Um, so in moments of wanting to give up, linking it to something bigger than yourself enables you to push on. It's a really strong, it's one of the greatest sources of resilience we have. And there's um, plenty of research from people who have survived POW camps and different things that they got through those times by saying, I'm, I'm not going to uh, have my children be fatherless or parentless or something. Like, you know, when we look at hardship and resilience, seeing the bigger picture is pivotal, mm-hmm. absolutely pivotal. Yeah, and I was just going to mention that I'm, I'm listening to a book now. It's called Deep Survival, and it's they are interviewing or they just kind of go through case studies of people who survive catastrophic events. And that's something that comes up repeatedly is that like, oh, and when this happened, like they, they talk about 9-11 quite a bit in it. And when they when XYZ happened, I thought of my husband and I, I knew I had to, to keep pushing through. Um, and when it comes to that, is there, can you get it wrong? Like how you can get your personal aspiration, not wrong, but can you be, can there be a common framework? Can it be like, oh, I'm doing this for my husband when maybe you don't care. (laughs) Maybe that's Mm -hmm. not a great driving force or is it? Yeah. I, I, I always say, I, I never, I don't think you can lie to yourself. I I really did. You can, and it'll work just like a mantra. A mantra can work here and there, but you you really want to get beyond mantras and it's got to be real. I mean, just look at the case study of Tough Mudder versus Spartan. Now, there's a lot of reasons why one got bought out by the other. And I'm sure an uh, economist or someone at Wharton could dissect why on, you know, these elegant economic terms. But um, I find it suspect that one had an extremely tight mission that was bigger than themselves and the other didn't. Mm. Uh, that's just an example. I could give you an example, and examples only go so far as the example it is. But um, you know, I, I would just say, have link it to something bigger and make it real. Make it at the core of what you do. And as much as people think Spartans, for example, are so profit, I don't. I don't see them. I don't see evidence that they are a profit-driven company. Because um, they're not making that much money. These are really expensive races to put on. And, um, you know, between Groupons and all the discounts and other things, I just don't see evidence that they're making so, so much money versus really trying to rip people off the couch as a primary goal. I agree. And I think that it's it's easy for someone to be like, oh, man, it's like 15,000 people. It's like 100 bucks a pot. That's this much money. Like they don't think mm-hmm. about like the mouths that they're feeding and like the everything else that they need to do. And they talk about that with like the expansion of uh, of, of how aggressive they are with that, but you're right. And even like with DecaFit, like, I don't even know if this is the right business move for them, but it meets their, their, uh, aspiration and their mission to get more people off the couch. So that's why they're mm-hmm. doing it. Like it might not make any sense besides just that. Um, right. so I think you're right. I totally think you're right. Um, and that makes, and that makes a lot of sense because if you can have that thing and, and have it, uh, th- something to think about, cause you can, you can quit on yourself, but it's much harder to quit on, on someone else. Um, yeah. Yeah, And and I don't know if it's helpful, but my, my bigger than myself is I wanted my daughters to be witness of someone transforming themselves 
prior to me doing that, I was always talking about it from things I've read. And, you know, I didn't want to do that anymore. And the other part of it is I knew I had a model that worked and all, and I knew I was going to really move it. And, um, you know, I didn't want to be the right message, but the wrong messenger. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be both the right messenger and the right message. And, you know, you could bring an NFL quarterback in to talk to a bunch of quarterbacks. That's the right messenger, but they usually have the wrong message. Mm -hmm. Work hard, be confident. That's the wrong message, but the right messenger. And so people will listen to the messenger. And I knew I wasn't the right messenger. I had never done it. So I wanted to show my daughters and I wanted to get the model out because I know it makes better people and it works and and it's been a real uh, uh, kind of amazing thing for a lot of people, a transformative agent for people. Um, I knew I had to be the model itself, you know. Uh, and so, no, it never, I never had an out. I never had the out to say I could just stop. It, it was literally never an option to stop. Once it's connected, it's our, it's there, right? Like you can't take that back. And, and you'll hear that a lot, like family uh, or being an example for offspring for children is, mm-hmm. is definitely a good one that to hold true to, to make that change and to, to live a positive, like healthy life. I hear that quite a bit and, and it's strong. One <laughs> last element of that. There's a cost to everything, everything, even if it's positive. And I remember West Virginia, um, you know, I was in the top three, me and the other two guys. And here I am at North American championships. I've been training for four years and I went literally belly up with an injury three miles in <laughs> yeah. and I finished something like 26 in, in my uh, 50 plus, um, out of it. And I can tell you, I went into such an immediate level of despair because I knew I just had this overwhelming feeling I had let everyone down. And, and that's the downside of that is when at times of failure, you're not just letting yourself down, you're letting everyone down. And that hurts, man. I, I hear that people say that to me sometimes, if there's a performance, that doesn't go the way that they were hoping. Like, Oh man, I feel like I let you down. It's like, you feel like I like, like, I feel like I let you down. How did you let yeah. me down in any way? But still, it's like the linking there and that everything just comes flushing down and the, the, yeah. all that weight is there. Um, and so for those of us listening, pick your buddy up because that is a moment of despair like none other, mm-hmm. letting everyone down. And I felt like I let you down. I felt like I let my children down. I It was an awful moment. Nah, but when you get hurt, I mean, that's a, a, a way to – it's not like it just – didn't race well, got hurt. Um, yeah, but you know, I know. Not <laughs> <laughs> that easy. Like he doesn't work on ration. We right. are emotional beings who happen to think. We're not thinking beings who happen to have emotion. Mm. So, mm. Um, so that that kind of brings us pretty well into the aspiration piece and how to find your own true aspiration and kind of linking it to somebody else. And now, once you have those things, do you kind of work into the cert model itself? Yeah. So then the cert model, um, let's go into that. I'll do it in two minutes. Uh, some people have already heard it before, but cert is an acronym and, um, 
it's really the framework, as far as I could tell, I liken it to uh, the periodic table of elements. You could talk about water and you could talk about different things, but they're all divisible into the periodic table. I've yet to come up with any other elements that account for performance that aren't reducible down to these four. Um, now, there could be, and if someone wants to add one to their own model, create your own model. That's great. But here's my four. Um, third is C, um, commit to the commitment. And in parentheses, if you're writing this down, commit to commitment, parentheses, time, and parentheses. So your commitment is the time. I'm going to land uh, into a little rabbit hole here, but it's think about it on a biological level. You're committing to an adaptation right, which is a change in your physiology to be able to accomplish something. Um, and so how long would it take to achieve that adaptation rather than just some number? So it's really a time variable. It's not commit to commitment to succeed. It's committing mm -hmm. to the time needed to create that adaptation. And I guarantee you, if you counted the number of mitochondria that Rich Ryan has in him versus me, you would count more mitochondria in him than me because he's a professional and can whoop me on a course by a good hour, maybe, you know. Um, but if you counted the number of mitochondria or muscle fiber or whatever it is, the adaptation, me versus someone who's just starting out, you would see a significant number there, right? It takes a long time to create mitochondria. It takes a long time to create a muscular system that's firing together. Um, you're not, you're not going to do that in two months. And for all of you who are hiring a coach, it's not the coach's fault. You had no idea the time requirement to do that thing. Um, and a coach, you should be telling someone honestly uh, if you want to qualify for Boston, here's your time right now. I'm anticipating that's going to take 18 months. And if they say, well, this other coach said I could do it in three months, go for it. Yeah. Try to work with that coach, but you'll come back to me because you're going to be injured and um, you're going to waste two years chasing something and you're going to be kind of at the start. And, and that's a hard conversation, right? Because that is something that people do want, especially if they are not super familiar with um, performance when it comes to endurance or OCR or, 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 or marathoning, whatever. And there's also different ages and there's, there's things you can't really figure out internally that people have. So when they ask that question, like, it's like, I actually have no idea. <laughs> this multi is probably take you a year. It could take four years. It could take the, a big, long chunk of time uh, that people might not want to hear. So that's why it's important to have the aspiration first, right? Mm -hmm. And so that you have the aspiration to bring it into the commitment is because like, okay, like you wouldn't commit four years of your life to be a better uh, model for your, your daughters. Like, I feel like that that's a good payoff. Um, yeah. So would yeah. you... Well, one framework I think that you do well with that I don't even think you know that you do. I think good coaches um, will under will hear what someone's saying and will point back why it's an incomplete story. Mm. So you don't just refuse it. You highlight that it's an incomplete story. So when a client comes to you and says, Rich, I need some body recomp right now. Um, 
I want to lose five pounds in two weeks or five pounds in one week because they heard a story about someone losing five pounds in one week. Mm-hmm. That's an incomplete story. It's not that it's not true. It's that if you do that, your performance is going to suffer immediately. And this is the week before the race. So I wonder, like, what do you think about that? That Because you do that. You, you highlight that it's not wrong, but that's an incomplete story. Are you aware that you do that? And <laughs> Yeah, I definitely, I am. Like, it's because it's easy for a coach to just say what they think and, and put it on to the person. It's like, or just say that it's like, well, you're going to race like shit if that happens. And like, maybe like, like, so no, <laughs> right. Like <laughs> that's easy for a coach to do, but really what they're asking. And I think we'll get into that later in this is like, I'm, I'm nervous about where I am right now in, in terms of my performance. And this is something that I've just kind of like thought about. So I, I need to figure out why that they are asking me for something and then kind of put it in that framework and then kind of complete that story for them. Um, mm-hmm. or complete it together. So it, it's rare that I'm going to just be like, unless, unless there is a point where it's, where, or they straight up ask me, like, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Um, but normally it's like, well, what, what do you think? What do you think this mm-hmm. is going yeah. to happen here? Right, right, right. Yeah. So coaches, I mean, I, I think you, you know, frame understanding it as an incomplete story than wrong mm-hmm. is important. That's because it's not it. necessarily wrong. It's just incomplete. Right. And what are the costs to that? There's a cost to everything. Um, so E insert is engaged process, not outcome. That's pretty easily understood. Uh, and when we get into in and out of cert, that's going to become more clear. So I'm not going to spend too much time on that. Uh, but it's always about the process. It's not about outcome. And if you think about you're committing to three years for something that that is process. Um, and so it's a tighter when someone wins tip your hat to them because they had a better process. Uh, and I think I may have referenced this before, but uh, the current world record holder in the marathon for 70 plus his quote after setting the world record was, and I, th- I this may be a paraphrase, but it's as close to a quote as I could get off the top of my head. Um, it was, it was, it feels good watching a process come to fruition Hmm. literally what he said it was all about process um not the grandiosity of the outcome right he didn't pull that outcome out of thin air right Hmm. it was all process so i thought Hmm. that was brilliant and you look at any of the top uh you know how many first uh first rounders are completely unknown 10 years later Right. You know, right, right, right. Their process sucked. And you look at six rounders or the last pick, Mike Piazza, the last pick in the last round who became a Hall of Famer process. And it's also so it kind of again, it kind of bleeds back into the first one because there is a, a long term process here and it's easy to kind of double think or, or uh, that's not the right word, but uh, not to, to question your, the process that you're on when you're, you're waiting for an outcome to happen. So mm-hmm. that quote from that marathoner is perfect, right? He's like, okay, I stuck with this and now I, I made the right plan. I, I did everything right. And I, I was right the whole time. And here it is. Or a lot of times people are like, uh, I'm not quite sure. Um, is this right? And then they start switching directions and the process is mm-hmm. never 
committed to. So there's never that time there that they're like, okay, well, it's going to take this long anyway. So this is what that process is going to look like. Right. And that's why there's no failure. There's only feedback. That's why your confidence should drop to zero and you should link into others. Um, I'm so linked into others. I have you as my coach. I, you know, um, I have a business partner for the model. I, like I'm too linked into people to need to question my process hmm. because these are excellent experts. They can't all be wrong. They're all in different modes arriving to similar conclusions. You know, I'm pretty confident in my process because I'm LinkedIn. Hmm. That goes back to the rapport round. Look at that rapport round coming up later. That, that, that <laughs> rarely happens. <laughs> so, yep. So R is a respect for knowledge, not talent. And people have asked me, like, why didn't you just use a different acronym? So you said knowledge. Uh, with <laughs> K, like, like tech or tech or something. Um, but no, it's respect, R, respect for knowledge, not talent. You should be walking around in the framework that we want to adjust to is you see someone doing something incredible, respect the knowledge that it took to build the process that led to that adaptation. That's a huge statement. Respect the knowledge that it took to build the process to build that adaptation it's an adaptation and that only comes from from process and that comes from knowledge so tip your hat to how much knowledge they possess yeah and that's a good one too because that that one when people see success happen and i think ocr i think this happens in all sports but in obstacle course racing in particular because it's relatively new so when people have early success they just chalk it up to, oh, that's talent, or that is, they just happen to be good at this. When really they have had some sort of adaptation throughout their life, maybe that wasn't meant for OCR, but is translating into OCR, um, that they don't have yet. And it's easy to be like, well, that person is just good at this, and I'm not, because that's just how the dice has been rolled. Yeah. Um, any, any phenom that there was a guy who started and he jumped a 210 uh, high jump, and he they thought this guy's going to break every world record ever because he's never high jumped before. Um, he was a basketball player who spent all of his time learning the nuances of jumping because he wanted to be the greatest at slam dunks. And so when he walked onto his high first high jump and he cleared a, a strong collegiate number, and that was his first high jump ever. That didn't come out of nowhere. Yeah, he's been jumping for his whole life. He's wanted he's to get right. better. Yeah. It just was going backwards instead of forward. Right. <laughs> and, you know, and he had to learn that a little bit. Once he did, he cleared 210. I think his career ended with him clearing 212. Mm, he never right, got right. to 220. He never got to, two, you know, any of those. He, he's, he squeezed out the adaptation prize for as far as it can go, and technique could only get him so much more. Well, and he, and <laughs> he thought it would be easy. Hmm. And so he didn't stick with the cert process. Hmm. His confidence never dropped to zero. He never reached out for help. He never transformed the nuances of what it takes. He never understood the main thing is is um, center of gravity, and it's actually below the bar because it's impossible to have your center of gravity above the bar. And that's why you do that flop and a little hip thing at the end because your gravity center of gravity is always below the bar. Hmm. He never understood, you know, all of the techniques of it um and never got to the top one percent and you see that all the time with first rounders 
Hmm. Yeah, for sure. Or so, and that's something that we talked about as well when we went through this is that like when I came up through high school, like I was relatively talented and had a good, had a, or talented quote unquote, I, for whatever reason, I had the adaptation to be good at distance running. So mm-hmm. it was always a matter of doing well when I came into something. Um, and now needing to find that, uh, almost that, that fuel for the fire to, to mm-hmm. f- follow this route and, and find mm-hmm. the adaptation and push myself to that. Whereas like a first rounder, uh, a blue chipper who just is, has it might not always need to do that. Yeah. And, and so you probably, uh, you know, hung out with a lot of boys and you did a lot of rough and tumble play and you did a lot of sprinting and different things at a young age. And so you had those adaptations fired in early before the age of 10 and that kind of stuff. And that looks like talent, but there was a lot of adaptation building at an early age. If mm-hmm. I had a, if I had a videotape of your whole life, um, I did win my elementary school cross country in first, second, first and second grade. Nice. Yeah. But you know, the question is what was going on there? Were you a younger sibling? Were you, um, were your friends younger siblings? Were the kids on the block older than you? Yeah. You know, all those things that those adaptations didn't appear out of nowhere. Right. I could highlight for you where they came from. If I knew more information. Yeah, it's funny. Like, um, there's one. There was one kid who was a great athlete who kind of bullied everybody else, and would like, and like we give him all. And there's in my little neighborhood, there's a bunch of really high level high school athletes, and we just give credit to this one kid who was like four years older than us who just like picked on us and yeah. kicked our butts in sports. But anyway, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. right. And that that stuff matters because it yeah. builds it, right? So yeah, so respect for knowledge, not talent. And then lastly, T trust. View all things through a lens of trust, and um, that that's critical because you're trying to uh be a witness to you doing something and once you're a witness to you doing it then you definitively know you can do it and that's important because when the chips are down you're going to question whether you can do it and um if you trust built if you know you can do it then you're either going to choose not to do it or you're going to choose to do it because you know, you're capable of it. Mm. And so view all things through a lens of trust. And so mm. when we get into the cert model, um, that's it. Uh, commit to commitment, which is time engage process, not outcome respect for knowledge, uh, not talent and T trust view all things through a lens of trust. And there's an intro level to that, that we get to, which is um, just knowing that and trying to have that fuel you. Uh, so just kind of viewing it, um, and then the more advanced level, which is really having it become part of your identity and it being a worldview, not just a model or something someone created, but being truly a worldview. Um, and physicists talk about that with like e equals MC squared or some of the frameworks, you know, they, they think physics. Like they, they see the world from that worldview, it becomes ingested, right? And so that's what we do with the advanced level folks is to really hit on the worldview. Um, and importantly, and I'll leave this and then I want to ask you some questions too, Rich, but importantly is um, you can, the, the benefit of CERT is it leads to better results. But the other benefit is you have this comparison 
compare and contrast at any given moment. So you can judge by your own feeling whether you're in cert or out of cert. And when you're in cert, you will feel calm, you will feel self-compassion, and you will feel patient. When you're out of cert, when you're not doing those four things, when you're outcome focused, not process focused, stuff like that, um, you will feel panic, the opposite of calm, panic. You will feel judgment, the opposite of self-compassion is judgment. And you will feel pressure, the opposite of patience is pressure. So when you're in cert, calm, self-compassion, patience, out of cert, panic, judgment, and pressure. And just as a coach, Rich, I can only imagine how many of your athletes are out of cert so much and they come to you, they either withdraw because vulnerability creates withdrawal and they go into a shell Mm. or they come to you in these moments of panic, judgment, and and pressure and challenge you or question or, or whatever. And I don't know how you, to me, the psychology of coaching comes down to, and why I think the model is so important for coaches comes down to recognizing that they're out of cert because they're feeling pressure. And your job is to get them back into cert. The thing I would ask of all you coaches out there which to me is kind of mind boggling is how the hell do you do that? (laughs) (laughs) Because it's not easy to put someone back into cert because you're a coach and you're like, well, you got to trust the process. That just sounds like they should have blind faith in their coach and not question you. Go away. (laughs) It's like, nah, talk (laughs) to me later. Yeah. Uh, But you know, you're the knowledgeable one. So I don't know on a coaching level, Rich, how you deal with that, but you get, I'm sure, a lot of people who are out of cert. So th- having it framed in this this cert package makes it much easier to to digest, especially if there's this this notion of being in or out. And, and it was great that we went through everything because they all do really build on each other. And if one's missing, that's all going to mm-hmm. kind of tumble so that you can okay. kind of go back and be like, okay, are you in or out? But a lot of times without something like this, when I've had to operate with this before, it comes down to like the individual and like it ends up being like individual troubleshooting and trial and error a lot where it's like, because the, and if you are fortunate enough to work with somebody for a long enough time, problems will come and then they'll go and then they'll come back. And then you can typically find, feel that out. And that's where that first part that you mentioned before, um, kind of allowing them to complete their story. uh, That's where that has to be kind of like taken note of and, and, and remember that that is something that they are capable of feeling or things that are capable of of happening to them and just allowing them to to complete that story, like using your words, which are, is like perfect. Um, But to have something where you can just be like, okay, are you feeling uh, calm right now? Are you feeling self-compassion? And, and like, they'll tell you how they're feeling based off of maybe not specific, but they're like, Oh, I'm nervous about th- this race. Like X, Y, Z is happening. Or I just did so poorly on this workout. I feel like such an idiot or, or whatever. Um, it makes it much clearer here to be in or out of cert when typically before it's like, okay, they, they have this issue where, they put a lot of pressure on themselves. So let's try to work that story out together so that they can kind of like smooth things out. Um, so it ends up being like piecing a lot of trial and error for each individual and trying to put their story together. 
Yeah, I bet. And and I wonder like to view it along multiple tracks, right? So um, someone like myself, you know, I might be strong as a runner. I'm, I'm shorter. So my body type is actually much more like a female OCR person, um, a little bit higher obstacle failure rate, mm-hmm. but higher fitness level, stuff like that. Um, you know, so for me, for example, um, there's multiple tracks. So if I came to you in panic because I'm not at my, I don't have a six pack ab. Mm-hmm. I'm not at 5% body fat or eight, eight, 10% body fat. I'm at 12%, let's say it's like, and I'm, and that's what I'm panicking about. Cause I'm like, Oh, I, maybe I'm not as ready for this race as I wanted to be. It's like, well, let's remember that you're on a three year process mm. and some people have the body comp recomp down before they get here, but their fitness sucks. Other people, you know, so over the next four years or three years or two years, we're going to try to pick up these other pieces, but you can't do them all at once. Like it's too much to take on at once. Mm -hmm. So your process is going to be, this is one of the last hurdles for me. It's taken me five years to figure out the body recomp five years. And I'm, and I'm just now kind of, at a good body recomp place. And you're right with that where it's like, okay, well, what is it that is going to move the needle for you the most now? And and for you, mm-hmm. it, that wasn't the first thing that we needed to address, right? Like that mm-hmm. was an area that could wait because um, I wouldn't tell you like you didn't really necessarily have to have what you, you may have thought that could have waited down, down mm-hmm. the line. Um, but yeah, it can, it can be messy that way and have people try to pile everything on at once and then, or, yeah. or having a specialized coach, which is something I, I don't believe I am, but it's like, if you, there is somebody that this fits people into a box and, and then have a, mm-hmm. a process oriented coach where it's like, this is just the way it's going to have to be. Um, I feel like that ends up happening quite a bit as well, but, but yeah, like trying to break things out into what's going to move the needle for you the most now and having that time is definitely helpful instead of trying to cram everything in because if you say you did cram everything and you figured it out right from the jump and we smoothed out some of the other things, like within the first six months and then you mm-hmm. you still weren't going to see the results that you're seeing now right so i could see yeah. how that could end up being a frustrating process from for the athlete's perspective yeah so to me like an ideal scenario would be an athlete comes to you and you figure out their aspiration and if you could really tie that down to what their actual aspiration is then i think you could be a little more gutsy and and it feels to me like coaches are hesitant to do this and, and maybe you have a reason why, but they're a little hesitant to put an actual time frame on it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, let's say I'm running, I don't know, I ran a, I come to you and I say, I ran a, what did I do the other day? A 712, 713, something like that, MAF run, right? So five miles, I didn't go above out of my th- aerobic threshold, uh, and I ran seven. 13 per mile. How long would it take me to be able to qualify for Boston from there? I, I, I actually think you could give a guesstimate, a decent guesstimate. It wouldn't be two months. It wouldn't be five years. Yeah. 
right? Yeah, no, totally. And then if you thought in kind of sequential steps, like, okay, what do you say we work on three months of this as a priority and we'll, we'll have these other things we're working on. And then we're going to switch around, which is priority, which is a little lower, but the next three months block is going to be a little more focused on this. And then we're going to focus on this. We're always going to be working on everything, but we're going to prioritize some things over others a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do you think makes coaches hesitant to really do a Cause part of it is commit to commitment, right? Yeah. Which is a time frame. Well, there's certainly an expectation um, that you might not want to lay on someone um, or it might be something that you're worried that they're not going to want to hear, right? Like to being mm-hmm. honest, it's like, all right, well, this is probably going to take you 18, 18 to 24 months. And um, so I hope you're, you're ready. And when there's a financial implication behind it as well, right? Like it's like, all right, well, this is going to be two years and like, oh shit, I thought this was going to be three months. Um, so mm-hmm. there's definitely a little bit of that. Um, and like I said, there's a lot of that, that goes with the training age and, and the adaptations that people will see. And some people will progress faster and some people will pr- progress slower. And it is just much safer and much more um, accurate, I would say, just to kind of hold on mm-hmm. and wait and see and see how they perform. And then there's other aspects of it. If, say, they have performance anxiety or there's trial and error and setbacks that could happen and, and big setbacks could and, and, and running happens all the time. You know, like, and that mm-hmm. can set people back on that timeline quite a bit. Um, so I think it's a, a combination of a lot of those things and just m- wanting them to be on the path that they are on now and not removing that and setting an outcome, I think is, is boils down to yeah. a lot of it. Interesting. I, I wonder if that money piece is big, but too, uh, you know, because um, you, you don't want to just hoodwink someone into doing two years with you at a, you know, but I think if you think about the confidence thing and you sat down with someone and said, I wonder if it'll take two years probably for that adaptation. Um, and we can work on coaching respite where you've learned enough. You go on your own for two to three months. So as to not incur a cost. And then you come back for three months. If you thought about it that way, I wonder if when they're on their own, their confidence, you're cheap by, by not allowing that, two-year commitment with coaching respites versus six months of commitment. It's the same pay. It's just dispersed, but those breaks would make their confidence drop. And, and, and that happens. Which is what happened with me, right? <laughs> I had a few breaks there yeah. and my confidence dropped because I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm lost without, you know, not lost without rich, but I noticed that I didn't know what I was doing. It, it's, it's helpful to have someone there for you for sure. And like that does happen sometimes with people like, eh, I think I got this or I need to take a financial break and then come back like, uh, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's run this back. What do you think? But I think you're right. I think it would help from, uh, uh, from a coaching perspective to lay something out like that and be like, in my expertise, this is why you're here with me. It's going to take this long. Right. And if you do all these mm-hmm. things, like this is what you're going to get your goal. And if you had, if it's tied to this aspiration, blah, 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 the whole deal, like, I feel like that is valuable enough to people that they would commit to something like that. But it is a little bit push and pull on that and just being um, and trying to figure out what, what they like, what kind of commitment level they're looking for. Yeah. And I think there's probably a bunch of you coaches could get together and we could create a 
buyer's guide to coaching. I would love that. Like here, here's a checklist, right? And if your coach isn't giving you a reasonable time frame, um, they might not be the best coach because they're not being honest with you of what it would take, right? Because then you have the good coaches doing that and the bad coaches promising the world and then people sign on to the bad coaches and they're charging less and they're, and they're charging and they have it they have like another job it's like it's just there are things like that that i see and i wish we could be like it's like hey can we just set the floor for the price on these things for people who are doing uh-huh. this and just be like this yeah. is really what you should get and this is what you're getting this is what it what the value is of it um yeah i think we should do that oh is your small enough yeah. i could probably get all the coaches every, every like past guest just bring them on have, have them exactly have them make and agreement. do that a buyer's guide because wh- what we find is folks this is important folks are lagging in achieving their core aspiration and that is hurting them on many emotional family interpersonal levels and so one of the things that's going to help bust them through is the knowledge base. Coaching is an essential component of that. And yet we don't have a kind of effective way for people to judge whether they're coach, what makes a good coach or not. Mm-hmm. And then we have coaches who therefore have to kind of feed into the market that is, you can't fight the tide. Um, and so you might have to shy away from effective coaching just because you know you're a small business owner right and then there's the element of like the group coaching situation and you see that and that's like an appealing way to go and a lot of people are doing that just because the scale is so much easier but it's just not good it's not that good of coaching but some people don't mind some people want that just straight direction for what they are are looking for and and you hope people can suss that out but i don't think i don't think people often do i think people think that that's just what the product is and that's just what the going rate is going to be and this that's the expectation um and i think it's all going to be kind of the same um, yeah. So a buyer's got to be sweet. <laughs> yeah. Um, sure. Cool. So when it comes to so the in and out piece, talking about self compassion and everything, um, and then where's that? Where's that go from? From there, is there anything else? How are you doing on time? Are you okay? I mean, we can keep rolling. Yeah, yeah, I'm okay. Um, yeah, where it goes from there? What I really work with people on an individual level, um, which is kind of that's when we're really looking at getting into the top one percent of whatever it is you're doing. Uh, the individual level is really trying to map it in as an identity. And it's amazing that it takes as long as it does. But, you know, you could expect a good three months of me. And I act like a trainer, not a coach, not a therapist. Um, it's really standing over someone like a yoga trainer does or, or a lifting trainer to say, no, your hip angle's off. And hip angles off, hip angles off for a lot of repetition. It's like, no, you deviated from cert here. Um, and I'm listening for it and correcting it. And what happens is it becomes a kind of global worldview. It becomes an identity. And that's, that's when then I can step out. Um, and so you see among all the elites, it really is an identity. One of the best examples, uh, I don't know if I mentioned him before, but Al Order won, uh, competed in five straight Olympics and won four golds, silver on the last one. He was discus, and right? He was, he was a thrower? Disc, yeah, uh, either shot or discus. I think discus, but whatever. And he, um, you know, he was all about process and the mechanics. It, it, and he had such calm about that. And he 
viewed things through the lens of trust. And this predates third, of course, because this was the seventies, but it became an identity. And his only non-gold was the Russian had faulted two times. And he said, if you just fix this one mechanic, you're going to throw that thing a mile. And the Russian fixed that one little mechanic on his third and final throw, threw it a mile and beat him. And that was his only silver. And he was thankful for it. Uh, the, not the Russian, the, the Al Order, the U.S. guy. He just was like, well, yeah, he deserved to win. His, his process and his mechanics were strong. And I didn't want to get beat by someone who had better mechanics than me. And when I got back to work Monday morning, I worked on the mechanics more. <laughs> Very process oriented. How often do you think that high achievers who might not even think about this are kind of following this framework or this worldview, like unbeknownst to them? Like someone like, uh, you know, the top performers will say Matt Fraser or uh, Michael Jordan type, you know, like. Do you think that they are? It's part of it. I've yet to find someone at the top of their game like that for long periods of time. Jerry Rice, Tom Brady, um, on and on the list goes. And, and you look at the folks who were highly drafted, Daryl Strawberry back then, um, some of the newer quarterbacks who were drafted number one and number two, and they don't make it. Um, you know, they are all about outcome. They are all about bravado, stealth. They fail. I can't find you many folks who aren't process oriented who have made it to the Hall of Fame or something like that. I, I can't name one off the top of my head, but maybe there's an exception. And that just makes me feel so much like better. And like when you think of it that way, it's like, okay, if you just this one process at a time and like, okay, like you can do that. That's no, that's no problem. <laughs> and like, if you think about Tom Brady doing that, it's like Tom Brady doing drills or not eating nightshades or whatever he's doing, drinking a hundred gallons of water a day or whatever he's doing. Like he has a process that he's following and he believes is going to get him there. So he must always feel good about like that. He's on the right path. Whereas a lot of times you hear about these quarterbacks or these professional athletes who do have the talent. And a lot of times it boils down to the, the, their, their head. It's not even that the, the physical gifts are never like, Oh, we, he just wasn't as strong as we thought he was like, they know how strong this guy's going to be, but it always boils mm-hmm. down to like something like their confidence and potentially being out of cert. Like those, those feelings that you'd have, if you'd be out like the judgment and the pressure um, are things that they're probably constantly feeling because they're never quite within that framework. Yeah. And that's why you get to what are the core mechanisms that lead to that adaptation? What's the four or five things, three to five things that are accounting for 80% of the variance? And you see these process oriented people like Brady, they break it down to that. Um, Brady releases the ball in less than three seconds every time. I mean, you know, a core adaptation to becoming an elite NFL uh, quarterback is to not take hits. (laughs) Yeah. And he never takes a hit. The ball's always gone so quick, right? And so you can see that they found the core elements of that specific adaptation, which in in quarterback land, an adaptation there we're looking for is to be healthy enough to keep playing. And he's found the mechanism that leads to that adaptation. If you think about mechanism to adaptation, that's what's key. Um, For all of you mountain trail runners like me take a look at Hobie call and look at his foot strike and you will see a near perfect vector same same with someone like Cody Moat um their stride looks very different 
but you look at how the angle of their foot hits the ground. Cody Moats looks like a prancing pony almost, but man, it's perfectly below his hip. It, it, and he's running on uneven terrain, unlike a marathoner who has the same foot strike. They're on even terrain. Cody, Mo- or you know, they can do it all on that. Yeah, and like the uh, aside from the vector, even someone like uh, Johnny Lunalima, who is now the king of going down, he was always talking about his ankle and hip mobility. And that when he posts about mm-hmm. his training, that's kind of what he posts about. He's like, "This is what you need. This is what I need. Mm-hmm. This is what I do every single mm-hmm. day um, to get that adaptation to have." to actually strength like his strength training is probably more along the lines of strengthening his, his joints and, and keeping things more mobile as opposed to doing, you know, deadlifts. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know that. I'll have to check that mm-hmm. out. Um, and that's, uh, yeah, that, that's fascinating. And, and so, you know, for, for me, uh, doing nasty descents like I do, um, part of that is training your quads, because your quads get shredded mm-hmm. when you do downhill. Um, and so training strong quads would be a core mechanism for downhill running too. Right, right, right. Yeah, and there's, a, there's endless ways you can go, and that's going to be different based on the the individual, what that person needs, what, they, mm-hmm. what adaptation they have not created right now. So if, like, you already have strong quads going downhill, like, yeah, that's going to help still if you can get faster at them, but – maybe you should work on like carries or something else to create that adaptation in a sport that was so many vast different skill levels um, Mm -hmm. to to try to. Yeah. And so to answer your question, I mean, everyone's been doing this stuff forever and those who, what, what I did, you know, and I'm not likening myself to these other people by any means, uh, trust me. Uh, But if you think about, um, uh, Oh my gosh, now I'm blanking on his name. Um, Apple, uh, Steve Jobs apple falling from the no, tree. Oh, Newton. Um, uh, Newton, yeah, yeah. thank you. Steve Jobs, uh, the rise of Newton. Yeah, so um, Newton just put words to what existed. Mm-hmm. That's it. So there's nothing new in what I'm saying. I just spent 20 years trying to figure out why number one draft picks don't make it and why six rounders like Tom Brady become Hall of Famers. Um, there's got to be some something there and I tried to find the mechanisms that led to the adaptation and as far as I could tell those are four core mechanisms and what's even better is you have a way to determine whether you're in or out of those mechanisms calm self-compassion patience versus panic judgment pressure and that makes sense because I think a lot of times people like oh Tom Brady outworked everybody in the room and like maybe but but within this process um he, he probably did that because I think that's what it boiled, what people want it to be is just work hard. Um, but you could still work, you work as hard as you want and still feel that, that pressure and, and the panic and, and, mm-hmm. and even sometimes more, it's like, uh, I know I can do more. I work hard. I know there's more to do. Um, so you can still kind of have that kind of way yeah. on you with. Uh, it is. Can I tell you an interesting conversation I had with an athlete the other day? Yes. The athlete <laughs> said to me, uh, I'm a very competitive person. Who's going to argue with that, right? That you could say, oh, Tom Brady's just a very competitive person. <laughs> right, he's the most competitive right? guy. Yeah, right. And he hard, he works hard. He's so competitive. He's so driven. Those are divisible. And what I said to the athlete is, I don't want you relying on you're a competitive person. What's the behavioral manifestation of you're a competitive person? And he said, 
well, for example, I went out playing golf with my buddies, but I, before that happened, I spent three days researching online a more perfect swing, and and I'm like knowledge. Knowledge, right. The behavioral manifestation is because you're so competitive, quote unquote, you seek greater knowledge and that knowledge translates into success. It's knowledge. It's not comp- being competitive. Right, right, right. Right? Yeah. Huh. And so, you know, we get these ideas that Michael Jordan was this super competitive person and super driven. Folks, don't buy into that hype. That's an incomplete story. That led to a a process. Michael Jordan would practice a move for two months before he would use it in a game. Two months. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, he was perfecting it. Um, And he was using it to a level that he could trust it. And once he trusted it, then he brought it to the game. Yeah, totally. And even watching that documentary, how like he was in the batting cages all day, just like trying to perfect his swing over and over. He just took what he had and just moved it somewhere else, right? And he probably didn't give him. He did, but he never made it. He probably didn't give himself the time. You know, he probably didn't. Well, he didn't give himself time, but I would say, did he really seek to find the core mechanism? Did he study it? Or did he just spend time, all that time in a batting cage? I don't know. I would think he was just, he was right? doing that, but I mean, he didn't play since high school. And then 10 years later, gave uh-huh. it two years to try to make the majors. So I bet it was the commitment. And that wasn't, it could be, right? You know? That wasn't enough. Yeah. But I find that folks often will excel at something and then fail at the other thing. And when they fail at the other thing, they didn't do the th- things that made them succeed at the first thing. Mm. They, they, they just abandoned that. Hmm. Um, uh, um, that might be Jordan in terms of his ownership and his drafting. Okay. That could be yeah. right. Right. Um, and that could be uh, Ben Franklin never being a good chess player, but being a good writer. Hmm. He never translated his, his approach to chess playing that he did his approach to writing, which was all process oriented. So, you know, if you study Ben Franklin, you could see he was in cert for writing and he never applied cert to chess. And not surprisingly, he sucked at it, or he was like a mediocre chess player. Right. Right. Um, he just didn't reapply it. Hmm. Interesting. And so, you know, we want coaches to be able to do some version at least of cert more and more with their athletes and coaches my i implore you to consider it why make a good why make a good competitor this is kind of my question would be you could make a good competitor um but why stop there you could make a more complete person who happens to also be a great competitor you know, and I'd rather make a more complete person um, than just someone who I have no investment in your gold medal. I don't. If you come to me, I'm telling you up front, I have no investment in you podiuming. I, but I do have an investment in you becoming a complete person. And I, and, and I know that podium, hitting the podium will come alongside being a better person. Yeah. 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 And like, I don't want to like just, like that is 
I have said to people before, it's like, I don't care if you get first, if you get last, I don't care if you even race, you know, it's like, I just want you to be happy. I want you to be happy with what you're doing. And like, this, like part of the process of this is, yeah, it's great for me if you podium cool, but like, is it great for you? Like, how are you feeling about it? So mm-hmm. um, I think that's a good kind of way to frame it and just bring it back to Spartan. It's like, that's the mission statement, right? That And yeah. part of the buyer's guide that should be in there. I <laughs> want you to be a better person. And I think coaches out there, you know, um, you have this unbelievable opportunity to transform people's lives and and create a more joyful, amazing life. And and you're such an integral part of that for people if you choose to to pursue that. And I think without the proper framework, you can't get there with your athlete. Mm, mm-hmm. um, but it's always there to be had. And so don't stop viewing yourselves as a coach for a specific performance. Um, you really are able and have the capacity to transform lives. You're a transformative agent. Um, because if they can, you, if you can use a model that helps them to achieve in one area, that same model, therefore, will absolutely work to achieve success in all other areas. 100%. But you need that model. 100%. And it's probably on the same lines as the high achievers in sport. Like the coaches are probably operating in this model with that they don't quite grasp onto, but they're just doing it because they know that's the best way to get the best buy-in from people or the best results. Some do, some don't. I mean, I've worked with elites and uh, they they they're at that pro level. And I'm horrified by how outcome focused people are. And so, no, yeah, it, it, it's not true. I mean, otherwise, again, why would there be so much failure in the first couple of rounds? You know, yeah, it's right. I mean, it's so ubiquitous in the first couple of rounds. Yeah. Um, well, Tim, I, I, I think we should cut this off just cause I feel, I yeah. don't want people to tune out. It's so good. I yeah, think yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, 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 right. Um, but this is awesome, man. Really. I enjoyed this conversation. I think we could go for hours and hours. We don't want to get toward like, um, Joe Rogan length or Tim Ferriss length, <laughs> but this will, this will be good for now, man. So, um, Tim, where can the people find you if they want to reach out to you, if they want to learn more? Yep, I'm on Instagram. We could put it in the show notes probably, right? I'm on Instagram. Oh, yeah, since when? I am now um, <laughs> with some content on there. Uh, Tim, on. Silvestri, <laughs> uh, Tim Silvestri. Uh, and um, I have my Facebook. Uh, that's kind of still working, being brought up. So Instagram's good Okay. for some content. And then hit me up. Uh, email is my name, Timothy Silvestri at Gmail. Um, and I'm free to give out my phone number too. If folks want to call me, uh, you can put that in the show notes, but let them, let them email you first before you let them email me. First. <laughs> yeah. My, my phone is on, uh, my website, so yeah, it's, can it's out in public. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> let them, let them do a little bit more digging first. Um, okay. but yeah, Tim, the, the content that you're putting out on, I haven't seen Instagram, but on Facebook is really high level stuff, really engaging, great, great content. So I'm glad that you are sharing it in that capacity. So I would uh, recommend that they give you a follow because it's a lot of the same type of stuff and expansive beyond just, uh, this, this particular model, which you're doing so much work on, but 
a lot of value that you have um, and you're willing to share on a lot of different um, avenues. So follow my guy. Cool. Yeah. And so, you know, if we do part two of this, we'll do troubleshooting. Mm-hmm. Um, people really love that or hit me up for some troubleshooting tips. And lastly, you know, start trying to see, uh, but I could tell you folks listening that Rich is steeped in this model and I can tell you firsthand, uh, his real passion is about creating more complete people and people who can live joyfully, not just better athletes, but you will be a better athlete for sure. So Hit Rich up. He's, a, he's, he's the real deal and his heart's in the right place and his performance that he gets from you, it turned me from a nobody to uh, top 1%, um, 50 plus, I guess, right, in the world. Yeah. Um, 1%. Yeah. And when, when we like get that. to race again, we'll get to see. But I appreciate that, Tim. Appreciate yeah. the kind words and I appreciate you taking the time and sharing so much. Absolutely. Right, we'll see you guys. Yeah.